Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. When you love what you're talking about, you lose all track of time. And that's what happened to us in this conversation. We set out to have a quick chat about the opening pages of Calvin's Institutes, and an hour later, we had just begun to scratch the surface. This episode takes the famous opening of the Institutes, where Calvin describes how all human knowledge consists of knowing God and knowing ourselves, and how those two kinds of knowledge are interdependent and inseparable, and applies this insight to a wide range of interests. It's a long one, so I won't give you more introduction than that. Let's dive right in. Cameron, whenever I am describing you to other people and you're not in the room, one of the stories that I love to tell about you is the way that you discovered Calvin's Institute's at Princeton Seminary. You've told the story before on the commentary, just the way that you were assigned the institutes in class and how it really kind of opened the door for Reformed theology to you. But for for people who haven't heard the story recently, give us like the thumbnail sketch of your awakening to the, the light that emanates from the institutes. Yeah, happily. So I think we did an episode a while back on calvin or calvinism yes and and i think that distinction was was troubling me in high school so i had encountered calvinism and calvinists but not calvin himself and so i i went to a a reformed high school and hung out with a lot of reformed people throughout college but it wasn't really until I got to seminary and took a class on Calvin himself and we just sat down and read his institutes. Not quite front to back, but almost. It wasn't until then that I encountered the man, Calvin, John Calvin, and and I think through him encountered some aspects of my faith that I had been missing or were there, but I didn't know that they were, you know, they came to me through Calvin. So it was just a very, very illuminating experience reading him for myself. And then, of course, having the, the context of these brilliant professors who, who know tons about you know, his, his context. And so, yeah, that was I, I mean, I pretty much knew from then on, like, this is this is my guy, you know. <laughs> right. I, you know, one of the experiences I think people often have when reading Calvin for the first time, especially if you've had preconceived notions of who he is and what he must have believed and that sort of thing is reading Calvin. Once you get past the initial sort of uh, complexity of, of the expressions and, you know, the difference of, you know, 16th century writing versus modern writing. Once you get immersed into his patterns of thought I find you're you're always kind of encountering things you either already believe or you already have some sort of grasp or at least intimation of, but now they come more fully into the light, right? That there's a, a sort of weird experience, and, and I'm not saying Calvin's the only author I've ever had this with, but but with Calvin, it's it's one of the experiences I feel like I have most commonly is that that stuff that was already floating around in the sea of my consciousness <laughs> starts coalescing and forming itself and kind of shaping itself into a continent like it comes together and there are like new insights revelations that sort of thing in that experience but a lot of it is 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 almost a ah yes this Right. This is the way it is, and this is how it goes together, that sort of thing. I think if you were to say, like, what part of Calvin's Institutes does this most fully, I would have to say it is the very beginning. It is that famous 
opening. And so in this episode, we're not tackling the whole of Calvin's Institutes, but we thought it would be interesting just to talk about the opening pages, the opening thoughts that Calvin almost sets the stage with and, and everything that that flows out of them. So a little bit of, let's say, historical introduction, not Calvin's history, but, but at least uh, my personal history. So Cameron, you already know this, but for our listeners, I have been reading Calvin's Institutes again recently, but in a new translation. The way this came about was over the summer, I had lunch with a Calvin scholar and he was telling me something he'd been reading in Calvin and it was just beautiful. It was so beautiful that that I did the thing that that other people do and I criticized them for. I, I thought, that's too beautiful to be Calvin. Like, uh, where where did you read this? And and it was uh, in the section where he's talking about the resurrection. And so it's a passage that's all about hope. And he talks about uh, hope, uh, happiness in Plato, and then in Christian theology. And so he was able to tell me exactly where he'd been reading it. And so I made a note of it. And then as soon as it was not rude to do so, I whipped my phone out and I looked up Calvin's Institutes and I read this section, but I had to use the beverage translation, yeah. uh, not drink, but beverage, <laughs> uh, the translator from the, I guess the Victorian era, 1800s. And, and it lost something in translation, not all the beauty came across. And, and I thought right there, one of my ongoing frustrations with, with reading Calvin is, is he's not always well served by, by translation. And so Banner of Truth recently published a new translation into English of the 1541 French edition of the Institutes. So uh, a more succinct version of the Institutes than the final one from the 1560s that we're all familiar with, because of course the book went through various versions and expansions and, and that sort of thing throughout Calvin's life. But but uh, I've been reading this and really enjoying it and, and I guess falling in love with the opening of the Institutes all over again. And so while that love affair was taking place, Cameron came to me and said, hey, you know, I think it'd be interesting if we did an episode where we talked about the, the two kinds of knowledge that Calvin opens the Institutes with. So... So Cameron, why don't you take over from here and kind of explain a little bit about what you were thinking in that famous opening? Like, what did that spark for you? Yeah, you know, it actually came through a different book that I'm reading, and I don't want to bring too many other distracting <laughs> sources in, but I was reading a different book, and I just finished it up, and and it's a book about knowing yourself. You know, mm -hmm. it's about it's kind of a, a self knowledge book, I suppose by a, a man named David Brenner and and he he references Calvin pretty early on and I was just kind of surprised frankly that he he did mention Calvin and it got it got me thinking again about this passage and just how I guess it was one of those passages that struck me like many did but this one struck me right away because it's right up front and it struck me because while it seems typical for a, a dogmatician or a systematician to open his work with the doctrine of God, the way Calvin relates the doctrine of God to our knowledge of self was kind of intimate almost and, and, and striking for that reason. Yeah. So I've got some, maybe some other thoughts about that other book by David Brenner that I could bring in, but for now I would love to just read a little bit of the opening? Yeah, yeah, That's give us right. a taste of it. So this is chapter one, section one of, of the Institutes, the knowledge of God the Creator. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. That's the, the section heading. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. So I, I think we can pause there, and Calvin is about to go into maybe the other side of the coin, which is to say, when we look at ourselves, we see brokenness and sin and confusion. But here, he begins with this, almost this humanistic image of, of man made in the image of God, and God being the one in whom we subsist. And for him, there's just no way that you can separate those things. So he's opening with the doctrine of God, but also this look at himself as a human. Yeah. I mean, that's always been so fascinating to me because he asserts these two kinds of knowledge. So there's knowledge of God and knowledge of self. But the, the very next point that he makes has to do with what you might think of as their interdependence, right? That it's hard to know which comes first. When he says uh, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. He's essentially talking about that chicken and egg problem. Like, which comes first? Do I start by knowing myself and that will lead to knowing God? Or do I need to set myself aside and focus on knowing God so that I can then know myself? And, And that turns out not to be a very easy or straightforward question because there's a kind of of interpenetration like the, these kinds of knowledge progress together so as he deals with them he is kind of updating both sides in a way like the the, the more we know god the more we will know about ourselves but also the the more we know ourselves truly the more insight it gives us into god it is striking to me that that section header states without knowledge of self there is no knowledge of god because it, it seems to me like the more pious formulation would be to flip that over and and talk about how essential knowledge of god is in order to know ourselves nice. but here he begins and the emphasis is is subjective right that, that we're, we as created beings in our dependence know ourselves imperfectly but but really and in that knowledge have some intimation or knowledge of god practically speaking i think the the immediate use he's going to make of this is the stuff you pointed out the bad the bad knowledge right the more you know about god's excellence the more you will know that you are a sinner but there is a lot more to it than that there's a lot of positive that that comes out of this as well yeah yeah, he has a sense that humans are endowed with gifts from from God. So he, he goes on, this is kind of beautiful line, he says, By these benefits shed like dew from heaven upon us, we are led by rivulets to the spring itself. So these gifts are signs that point us back to the source of our being which is God himself. So I think that's that's why looking at yourself has to point you to God. But I don't know if I even want to say that because I feel like I feel like what he's about to say again is kind of going to be a corrective there where we can look at ourselves and also just get utterly lost. Yeah. Well, so let's let's think about that for a minute. So if if we took an example of something we might see in ourselves that that could function this way. Um I think of love this way a lot, that, that our experience of love is one of the most beautiful things that, that we have, that when you love someone, uh, that love has an extraordinary, I don't know, it, it is a gift, right? It does feel like a gift when you think of uh, whether it's, you know, husbands and wives or you know, parents and children or friends or, you know, whatever form that love takes, 
it brings out the best in you. Oftentimes it will um, give life a perspective. You will find it easier to put the needs or concerns of another person ahead of you. And in that feeling where you are minimized and someone else is sort of built up, you have this, to use Calvin's term, this rivulet, right? That is leading you towards this source of love in God, mm-hmm. right? That that experience, as wonderful as, as that human love is, is, is merely a, a sort of taste of this much greater reality that, that is found in the love of God. But it does work the other way, right? Because human love can also take you down a dark path. There are things we do for love that are bad. You know, there are things that we do that that are selfish. There's a lot of ego involved as well. And so that experience of human love also shows us the distance between our love and God's love too. So we can see the commonality on the one hand, but also the distance on the other to me, the 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 beautiful insight here is that Calvin's not losing sight of either of those realities, right? He's going to use both of those things over and over again, like to show us the good thread, which comes from the image bearing that God created us and has given us these gifts that reflect him in us, but also the reality of sin that can have that distorting effect on those gifts. And so, you know, makes it so that none of these echoes or none of these um, shadows truly does represent the great thing that, that it should. As I'm thinking about it, though, I think I'm realizing I th- he's saying that even those faults are supposed to be pointing us to God, right? Yeah. Like he's saying it's not just that you know, the, the human gifts of love and reason and truth point you to God, but that your, your own poverty, like when you see your poverty and your failure to love and your, you know, your vanity and all of that, that too is giving you knowledge of God in, in contrast in a different way. That's exactly right. He says, these are the very words, to this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. So even in, let's say, like the the negative self-knowledge, the kind of self-knowledge we might prefer not to have, he sees in that another source bringing us back to God, our need for God. So this gets me to... To a question I wanted to ask you, and this is related to the other book by David Brenner. The book is called The Gift of Being Yourself, which is kind of a silly title in, in my opinion. <laughs> but the book was actually quite good. So I, I would recommend it to, to listeners. Well, he talks about the, um, so he's a, a psychologist and he's talking about you know, self-knowledge from that perspective, but he's also a Christian. He has some things to say about looking at yourself honestly, truly, and seeing those things like Calvin mentions here that are kind of ugly and that you'd rather look away from. But he's, he encourages us to actually embrace those things as, as a genuine, real part of who we are as a broken creature. And that accepting the reality of, say, a particular sin that I'm, or a particular struggle or propensity is essential is the essential first step to to changing i guess Mm. or to to allowing god to change us in that area because i I guess it's not accepting he's not saying accept yourself as you are but it but realize that there's something there that's really there right and it can't be addressed unless you see it yeah okay That is a really interesting point because I think it runs a sort of middle way between two extremes. Like one we might think of as the 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 extreme of our culture, and the other one maybe the the extreme of a well-meaning piety that that doesn't quite get things right. Um, The analogy I would think of is you know there's a story that Oliver Cromwell when his 
painting was being made, his portrait was being painted, insisted that he be portrayed accurately, warts and all. Yeah. He did not want to be flattered. He wanted to be portrayed as he was, including his shortcomings. Um, I think that kind of self-knowledge, the, the scrupulously honest kind, is beneficial to us uh, theologically, spiritually, psychologically, in, in every way. The kind of thing we often tell ourselves as self-knowledge, though, is the acceptance that you were referring to earlier that is not really accepting my faults as, as my faults, but because they're mine, telling myself they must not be faults, right? That, that uh, we often think of acceptance as a sort of, I don't know, like a, I guess a condoning, right? That, that um, not owning up to your limitations, but, almost convincing yourself that those are not limitations or seeing them as, as something positive, not negative, let's say. And, you know, that could work in every level. If you think from a therapeutic mindset, we could be talking like, like on the, the big level, you know, saying, well, the Bible says this is a sin, but if you do it, then it's your identity. Therefore, how could it be wrong? Versus something really, you know, much lower stakes than that, where it's just, just accept this about yourself. This is just the way you are. And that's just who you are and how God made you. And you just have to live with it. I think those are all ways of disconnecting um, the self from its sin, right? That, that in order to sort of accept ourselves, we have to tell ourselves that our sins are not really sinful, that either they're not sinful at all or that yeah, they're, they are, but they're the understandable, not really very sinful sins or, you know, whatever it is to make excuses in other words. Yeah. So the kind of, I think knowledge of self that, that is beneficial is the kind of knowledge of self that does not make excuses. Mm-hmm right? That looks at faults as faults, that recognizes sin as sin, that doesn't um, try to make some sort of rationalization, let, not to let you off the hook. On the other side of it, though, I think there, there can be a, a tendency to kind of go in the other direction where there's a, almost a... a like the only thing I know about myself is my sin. You know, the only thing I, I know about myself is my worthlessness and, and, you know, what a wretched worm am I and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> where again, like it's, it's, it's true in some sense, but it's not the full picture. It's certainly not the full biblical picture of who we are as human beings. Right, so I guess the simplest way of saying this is, we want to affirm we are both created in God's image and fallen, and the tendency is to to seek a sort of understanding of ourselves that that either sacrifices the fallen part or sacrifices the made in God's image part, and both of those things go together, and both of those are part of our identity. You know, not to say that that uh, we're defined by our sinful desires or anything like that, but, but that if we're honest, we see our weakness. We recognize, like, these are, are my shortcomings. This is part of who I am. This is where I have to begin. I have to acknowledge this before I can change it. Like, otherwise, I'm just making excuses. I'm just blinding myself to the knowledge that, that, that would set me free. Yeah, that word acknowledging, I think, is maybe a a good synonym for what Brenner's trying to get at with it. Accept. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's getting at. That there's no hope for light to be shed on something if you don't acknowledge it. My fear, and something I've seen in my own life, is that sometimes we we think broadly, anthro- uh, theologically, about human nature. And we know, well, you know, 
God created the world good and, and we're all fallen now and I participate in that fallenness and I'm broken and stuff. But our knowledge of self stays kind of there at that like cosmic level, yes. but it doesn't sink down to the actual level of, of my own individuality, which is unique from other people. You know, I, I, I have unique struggles and yeah, I have unique struggles that, that actually need to be illumined. And I, and I think, you know, Brenner and Calvin, frankly, are, are helpful there that, that it has to go all the way down to the level of the individual, not just this, I, this idea of being fallen. If you take our liturgy and the moment where we confess our sin, you know, it happens in two parts where we have a corporate confession of sin followed by an individual confession of sin. And that's maybe a good metaphor to think about this, that it's possible for a person in a worship service to participate in the corporate confession of sin. And then in that period of silence afterwards to just think of other stuff, (laughs) right? And not to actually reflect on your own shortcomings and your own sins to repent of those actual transgressions. I think it's possible to live life that way as well, to acknowledge on the meta level, the fallenness of humanity and say, I am a human and therefore I am fallen without really taking seriously the sinfulness of your actual sins. You know, in fact, it's a way of, as I said earlier, letting yourself off the hook, right? If, if I believe in, in total depravity in a weird way, that can be a kind of license, right? That, that of course I'm going to be sinful. We're all sinful. That's the truest thing about human nature is its fallenness. So in my sin, I am, reinforcing the the doctrine that i believe in and and yeah but (laughs) you know that that's not the whole doctrine right there's also sanctification there's also uh, a lot more than just that acknowledgement of, of sinfulness and so yes i think in order for us to grow in knowledge of god and knowledge of self and to grow in grace there has to actually be like let's say more than just abstract knowledge of either mm-hmm. God or self. Yeah. And so, so this is one of the things I think though, that's so incredibly elastic about Calvin here, because this insight of his and the way that he develops it in just a few pages can be used in a primarily theological way. Like you could take what we've discussed and then you could focus on something like conviction of sin, right? And the importance of leaning into our knowledge of God so that we might come to a conviction of our own sin and a desire to turn from that sin. But you can also take this in a level, you know, as, as we've just been saying, that, that is almost like therapy, you know, that's almost like getting some psychological counseling, working on my issues, that sort of thing. And and I don't think that that is a twisting or distortion of the point. I think that's actually showing that this is an idea that, that is, is at the heart of a lot, which makes sense, right? Because he's saying in the very beginning, all of our knowledge consists of these two things knowledge of god knowledge of self and they're interdependent so that's built into that statement like he's telling us this is like a fount right there's there's a lot that's going to flow from this this point of contact and i think in every discipline you're going to find this not just in psychology not just in theology but but everywhere you're going to find this sort of interrelation and interdependence of divine and human knowledge and it's in the areas where we forget this that our thinking about these things goes astray or or our practice of them goes astray that if we can keep coming back to this interdependence it's a way of orienting ourselves in whatever discipline we happen to be you know focused on at the moment yeah i'm just thinking of all of the the passages later on in the institutes where Calvin does get very pastoral about, about the gospel. And I feel like if I was to summarize his, his understanding of the gospel, it's that in Jesus Christ, 
in union with Christ, we become children of God and can relate to God as Father. And for him, like the, the fatherhood of God and all of the blessings implied there, that is like the complete blessing of, of the gospel. And, and that new relationship, because of Christ and, and the Spirit, just enriches this very idea, you know, that our knowledge of God and our knowledge of ourselves is like our complete knowledge because it, it just opens up this whole new realm of possibility to, to wonder what does it mean that, that God is my father and that, you know, that he loves me now. Yeah. I mean, this ventures a little farther, like we're, we're out of chapter one into chapter two here, but Calvin makes this point in the first section of chapter two, when he says in this ruin of mankind, no one now experiences God either as father or as author of salvation or favorable in any way until Christ, the mediator comes forward to reconcile him to us. Nevertheless, it is one thing to feel that God as our maker supports us by his power governs us by his providence, nourishes us by his goodness, and attends us with all sorts of blessings, and another thing to embrace the grace of reconciliation offered to us in Christ. There's a lot there, but but it touches on that idea of, of the restored uh, relation of father to child that comes to us through Christ, and also the the difference between I hate to say head knowledge and heart knowledge here, but 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 that sense that that there's a a kind of intellectual comprehension of these providential realities that is not quite the same thing as the embrace of the grace of reconciliation as as Calvin refers to it, and that both of those go together. Yeah, Brenner talks about it as objective knowledge and personal knowledge, hmm. which, which is helpful for, for me because objective knowledge is real knowledge. You know, you can know that God exists, but it becomes a kind of personal knowledge when I enter into a relationship with, with God, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the moment in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul talks about, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And, and the turn that that sentence takes when it's him talking about his own knowledge, then I will know fully. You know, here we're thinking, you know, content knowledge. Like, then I will have all my questions answered and that sort of thing. But, but when he says as I have been fully known, it turns it because, you know, he's not thinking of himself as a subject to be known in that sense of like, you know, all the facts about him are fully known by God and he will one day fully know all the facts. Mm -hmm. That second kind of knowledge, the knowledge God has for him has that personal side to it. And it, it changes the understanding of the first kind of knowledge, right? That, that the, uh, then I will know fully becomes more complex and more personal once you see the the mirror image in in the knowledge God has of us. And so, again, I mean, I, this is this is a foundational metaphor for Paul, which opens Calvin's Institutes, and I think becomes for us a a, a, a just a basic, let's say, tool for thinking as we try to understand the, the relationship of ourselves to God and to the world. I've got one last related topic that I wanted to talk with you about. And speaking of Paul, I was just thinking of, of second Corinthians three, a different passage Mm -hmm. where he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. The question I've been thinking about lately, and I'm not sure what Calvin would say about this is, you know, just like we sometimes generalize the sin problem. Sometimes we can generalize sanctification. And this is, this is what I mean when we talk about, 
growing, like Paul just said, growing into the image. He even says the same image. So all of us are being conformed into that same image of Christ by beholding his glory. Do we, do we lose individual personality in that process? I think that's my question. Something that Brenner talks about a little bit is like when we become increasingly sanctified, do we become less unique as individuals and more, more conformed to not just the image of, of Christ, but to the image of all of those other Christians around us? Because, like he says, we're being conformed into that same image. Does that question make sense? It does make sense. I think there is a strain of spiritual thought uh, writ large, not not just thinking in terms of the Christian tradition, but uh, in spirituality in general, where the idea of losing oneself is valorized, right? Is seen as 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 a step in, of progress. Um, that the sense we have of being, you know, separate particularized individuals is more illusory than we realize and that a restoration of our unity would be a higher spiritual state mm-hmm. um i know in some uh new age and in sort of eastern circles you would even think of human beings as as cupfuls from the ocean of godhood yeah the aspiration being to be poured back in right to to kind of move from the diversity that we now experience into a final unity so when you describe that i think there is something that feels deep about it something that feels profound and moving about images like that. I mean, it's it's close to what Calvin just said with the the rivulets leading back to the spring. Yeah, you know, the source absolutely. going back to the source. Absolutely. And yet, I think there's a slightly better way to think about this. <laughs> so, instead of a movement from diversity to unity, what if unity and diversity were equally ultimate? You know, we think about the triune God we distinguish between the one and the three and we don't ultimately try to resolve God one way or the other. You know, not, we're not saying, you know, God is one and not really three or three and not really one. There's an unresolvable situation in the Godhead. We're created in the image of God as human beings. And I think there's reason to, believe that in us there's some sort of reflection of that irreducible unity and diversity so that in human beings we have great diversity but also unity and we have a struggle within us to resolve it one way or the other you know there there are people who privilege diversity over all things and people who privilege unity over all things and it's difficult to try to maintain those two things in balance, but I'm going to say better and more godlike to see those two together. So, when you think in terms of scripture, we will encounter unifying passages. We find Paul saying there now will be no more Jew and Greek. There will be no more slave and free. There will be no more male and female. But all will be one. And yet, in the Christian community that he's referring to, these differences don't disappear. Mm -hmm. Right? These identities are not evaporated. And I think there's a goodness in that. Why shouldn't the, the Jew and the Gentile have their own history, their own identity that is still brought into a unity in Christ. Like why would they need to lose their identity in order to find unity in him? So I think somehow these things go together and that as we are brought into greater conformity to the image of Christ, 
that that is not an image of the loss of identity. I don't think it's like a fading away of us so that we can sort of be subsumed in him. Mm-hmm. Even though I recognize that that some part of that resonates, you know, some part of that sounds beautiful. And, and, and if somebody said to you, you know, it's all about you sort of evaporating into a cloud of Godhood or something that would just sound so wonderful. I think God's plan might actually be better than that and might involve that, that, you know, glory in his presence and beholding that vision but it doesn't evaporate you, you know, it doesn't destroy you. It's not, I mean, I think maybe that's the significance of the unveiled face. You know, Moses has to veil his face because if he looks upon the glory of God with an unveiled face, it will destroy him. Like he, he can't do it. And yet the, the vision for humanity to come is precisely this, right? That's the eschatological hope. And so I think if the eschatological hope is to see God face to face and the consequence of seeing God face to face is the thing that Moses wore the veil in fear of, it wouldn't really make sense. Mm. So again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying not to be dogmatic, but I'm just going through the reasoning why, why I think that not only is knowledge of God and knowledge of self like two interrelated things now, but I think these will remain connected, interrelated, and yet distinct things even in the world to come. Yeah. Well, I dare say that uh, I think Calvin would approve with the the theology that you're doing right now because you're you're taking a Trinitarian, you know, doctrine of God, and and asking what is our knowledge of that God you know that trinitarian father son and spirit god have to say about our knowledge of ourselves and i th- i mean i agree with you that there is some strange sense in which we remain individuals and yet we are completely united with one another in the body of christ but the reason that this question means a lot to me is because i guess i just think you know, I sometimes wonder if there are if there are lots of different ways of being faithful to Jesus in this life. And sometimes Christians talk as if there's only like one or two <laughs> or you know, these you can do these things and this is how the the Christian life should look from the outside or these are the things that you can do. But it seems to me that if if God really does sanctify us as individuals and some kind of individuality remains, then our Christian walk might look kind of different from other Christians, but it could be faithful. I think of how different the lives of John and Peter looked. Right. And it's not to say that they were both like ideals in any sense, but they, they clearly had different temperaments, different personalities and all of that. And yet, you know, God drew them to himself and, and they were both apostles. So, yeah, I mean, I th- so I think there's a way, in which we can affirm what you're saying and then a way in which we would probably say, hold on. Uh, so let's take the, the hold on first. Right. The hold on would be, um, so sometimes when people say like, like faithful Christianity could look different ways for different people. What they're trying to say is something like, maybe for you, it's important to believe in this doctrine the Bible teaches, but for me, that's not part of faithful Christianity. I have a different path, right? Yeah. So, and of course I'm not saying that. No, yeah. no, but that's, that's like, you know, the, the, the way to let ourselves off the hook. Mm-hmm. Right. But having sort of set aside that misreading, the reality is we do face very different and individual paths. You know, I think even in our mission statement as a church, this is embodied in the sense that we talk about, you know, people finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. I mean, yeah. it assumes that your way and mine might be different, just as our gifts are different, and that we might serve the world differently for Christ because of those different gifts. And so, ironically, that's that's something I would say that that has been kind of part of our DNA as a church from the beginning, that understanding that, 
like, like the way to serve Christ is to figure out your gifts and opportunities and to pursue those individually, particularly, and to prioritize that over like collective box checking types of service, right? So, what do you mean by that? Well, so I would very much like people to help out with stuff that needs to be done at church. But if the only time you serve other people is by volunteering for things at church, um, that's not really using your particular gifts and your particular, you know, calling to serve, right? That that's important. And like that sort of baseline that we talked about earlier, like there are ways in which everyone more or less follows a similar path if we're following after Christ. But beyond that, on top of that foundation, you, you can build a, a much more specific understanding of the way that you serve, right? So in my experience, what this means is that believers face a kind of, like a, let's say like a, 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 a peculiar journey of self-discovery, that part of the, the knowledge of self that you're working on is, is figuring out how God has equipped you and prepared you in order to serve him uniquely in ways that are different from the people around you, right? Your support structure, your community in Christ, it's there for a reason, but maybe what God has for you is going to be a little different. And you've got to discover what that is. And so for some people in our congregation, that has to do primarily with their work, you know, with their vocation. They're looking to figure out how to serve that way. But for others, it it's about family situations, relationships. It's, it's other opportunities in life that have, have come up that they're trying to figure out, wait a second, like, what am I supposed to do with this? I, I feel like God is is preparing me for something or moving me towards something and, and trying to discern that path is a big part of it. That's another kind of knowledge of self to quest after though. Right. And, and it's not the generic, what are human beings like? Mm -hmm. It's, it's the very particular, what is this human being equipped for? Mm -hmm. And, and what should he or she be doing in this moment? And, in a weird way, this might be the most important kind of self-knowledge. It's not navel-gazing self-discovery, you know, to, to try to find myself. It is a kind of like quest for purpose to, to find like, why have I been given what I've been given and what am I meant to use it for? And to take those questions seriously and to be intentional about that equipping. So again, like it brings us back though to that fundamental, because if you're going to answer those questions, you're going to find yourself really asking like, okay, well, wh who is God? Like, what is he like? What is his character and nature? Like, why would he give me a gift like this or an interest like this or an opportunity like this? What could he possibly expect from me in this situation i can't answer that question if i don't know him yeah. i have to know him in order to to guess at these things and so in order to to know what i'm for i need to know more about him so once again we find ourselves in another area of life thrown back on the the first chapter of the institutes <laughs> i can really add nothing to that as very beautifully said um, yeah, I mean, I'll just reiterate what you were, you were saying at the end about, about needing to go back to God. I, I just think that, I mean, searching for, for a personal identity is a very common thing in our culture right now. You know, everyone is like trying to figure out who they are. What's different for Christians is God, that God is the, you could say the, the context which provides context to all of the other contexts of our life. You know, you look at all of the very popular phrase, the intersections of my personality, say yeah. all of the things about me that makes me, me, they kind of, well, I think back to Augustine who was so confused about who he was until 
he came to know God because God provided a unity to his individuality that just wasn't there before. You know, yeah. there's, there's nothing there until God provides that ultimate context and orientation towards ultimately towards himself. Yeah. When I was in grad school, I had to read uh, Stephen Greenblatt's book, Renaissance self-fashioning. Wow. And it intrigued me this idea that, that in the Renaissance people became conscious of themselves as like a self to be constructed. Like you work on the project of yourself and, and in particular how you might present yourself to the world. And I think that is a very modern kind of problem. It is not really the same thing as self-discovery. What we're doing as a culture is not embarking on a journey of self-discovery. What we're doing is more of a project of self-invention. Oh, yeah. and, and I think that's the, the difference that you've put your finger on, that Self-invention is self-referential, right? I just have to make up myself and figure out what I want to be. Self-discovery has to be more than self-referential. Like it needs some anchor outside of itself. So in order to discover these things, I have to have some uh, outside source. I have to have knowledge of God in order to illuminate knowledge of self. And so that's the difference between Augustine's kind of self-discovery and the the modern self that that we're constantly, you know, struggling to 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 form identities around is is that what we're doing is the modern self-invention. And what Augustine is is doing is an older, deeper Christian self-discovery like to to know ourselves in knowing god and vice versa that's the difference and that's what we're aspiring to here and it's the reason why i go back again and again you know in different translations and reread these words of calvin's because as many times as i read them i think i have only begun to scratch the surface of what is here Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.